Greetings. Welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Chuck Randolph, Ontic's Vice President of Security and Intelligence. From 30 years as a military officer and 20 transforming corporate security teams to function beyond their traditional roles, protection, risk management, and threat mitigation have been front and center throughout my career. This podcast series will explore the turbulent world of risk, security, and protective strategies through conversations with leaders and innovators in the field. Now, on to the conversation. Dean, welcome to the Center for Protective Intelligence podcast, my friend. Uh, Always good to hear your voice. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here, Chuck. Uh, yeah, always love talking to you. It's always productive. Well, we were we were we were laughing before we turned the mics on. Like, how do we limit what we want to talk about to one or two things? Because uh, you know, we've shared mics together before. We've shared the stage. I mean, I you know, I I love to follow you and love the fact that you're all about intel, all about the the analyst, all about the work. So, uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, same same here. Uh, we could do a marathon session sometime uh, if we wanted to raise money. Uh, if anyone would pay to listen to us pontificate about Intel stuff, <laughs> well, I know we could two go for people hours that like. and hours. So, well, let's you know, <clears throat> but I do kind of want to. I want to kind of zero in on one thing, and you know, given your background, you have tremendous tremendous background in .dot com, .dot gov, .dot le, .dot mil. Um, and you know, both, uh, in, in, you know, a breadth of, of, uh, knowledge on the operations and the intelligence side. I mean, one thing I've, you know, and I follow you and on social media, one thing I've seen you talk about over the last maybe 18 months or so off and on is this idea of what I might call the post brick conundrum. You know, we have, we have this moment in time, I think geopolitically, geostrategically, where it was a big kumbaya, everyone was happy to be in everyone else's supply chains. This is really the turning of a new, uh, of of a turning of a corner. And perhaps we turn that corner and there's a bit of a brick wall that we, that we didn't think would be there. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's interesting. Over the past couple of years, I've started thinking more and more about the years leading up to World War One, um, not because I think there's going to be a huge world war necessarily, but there was this common feeling sort of like in 1912, 1911, that um, the world was so economically interdependent that it made wars obsolete. Like there was not going to be any more um, great power competition because um, I was – um, manufacturing in this country and we were trading with that country and it was just, it was in everyone's best interest to not, um, uh, fight, but, um, much like that theory didn't work out in the early 20th century. I don't think, um, that theory is really going to hold up in the 21st century either. Um, and we're seeing that right with, um, I think with Russia, um, and with China. Um, and I think there's a number of other countries where this sort of, um, um, uh, attitude that you had mentioned where everyone felt like, you know, that kumbaya attitude where we can, let's work everywhere. Let's get the most efficient, um, process and, and labor, um, everywhere is, is going to come under new strains, uh, as we move forward. Do you think we're seeing a bit more of an authoritarian wave or do we think the authoritarian wave is just surfacing and it's always been there and we washed it out with this idea of like, hey, here we go, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And I think there were some additions to the whole BRIC concept, you know, but 
behind. We just we did we fail to see it, or was it just exacerbated by things like COVID, uh, Russia's entry into Ukraine, et cetera? Uh, I mean, I I think probably the latter um, that it's it's been there, but the change has been right. So these authoritarian, a lot of these um, countries, mostly authoritarian, but maybe not always, over the past 20, 30 years, have opened up and be, become very lucrative markets. Right. So so a lot of companies want to do business there. All sorts of new customers there, um, and these authoritarians. It seems like in the past five years or so. Um, have figured out, maybe a little longer, have figured out, hey, wait, um, we can use these companies that want to that want access to our markets to solidify our power base, right? Yeah. And so yeah, we're seeing that point. in a variety of sort of laws, um, the way that they use their security surfaces to sort of pre- you know, invite in these companies. Then once you're in and you've got sort of you've got sort of a stake here and and the revenue's coming out. Then you begin to apply pressure on them and you say, well, if you want to continue to have access here, you better do this for us. You better do that for us. And that pretty it's quickly, you can, yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it makes me think of things like war or let's strike through war and say conflict through other means. Uh, a good example of that is, you know, sanctions activities that, you know, some have said are weaponized the best way in order to help exert pressure. And I think you're right. Like we can turn around and and weaponize our own laws uh, within a nation to say, great, cool. Uh, Dean Inc. wants to work here. Cool. 30% of your company needs to be owned by, you know, a national. We can easily insert what we want. I mean, this is all presents very unique challenges for uh company not companies that that do business internationally and probably a lot of businesses have an international footprint or touch point wouldn't you agree yeah and um and as we move forward um the pressure and leverage that these um countries can use is going to get more and more sophisticated right it's not going to be the uh bring me a brown paper bag with filled with cash, or even the, like, you need to officially, 49% of your company needs to be owned by one of our citizens. You can do increasingly sort of subtle things. And the whole the whole point is, we want to make each individual step palatable. And you go, well, we wouldn't like to do it, but it's it, do, it's, it, do, it doesn't cross a red line. And keep doing those until you're so far entrenched um, that you can't sort of pull out easily. Right. And, and it's much like it's much like uh, in counterintelligence when somebody is sort of developing a, um, a source. Right. You get them to do little things, you get them to do unobjectionable things um, and you just begin escalating that. And before you know it, um, they're they're in too deep. Well, and that that's a great example, too. I mean, the whole counterintel thing, you get them to do small things, small things happen before over time, it just becomes part of the accept accepted norm. Now, you know, this is interesting. This poses a problem, I think, on on multiple fronts. A, well, let's say three three areas that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. One, I'm a business decision maker. Two, I'm part of the risk uh, scaffolding within an organization. And then three, I'm that lowly overworked analyst that now has to start considering these things and figuring out how do I talk about it to the scaffolding and the leaders so I can best enable decision support. I mean, how do we even start, how do we even start, I guess, zeroing in to help the, how do we start thinking about the problem, I guess, from that analyst point of view? 
Well, right. Um, no analyst is going to be popular if they go to the C-suite and they say, we can't do business with like three quarters of the of the world, right? Like that's going to be a non-starter. So the um, the corporation, the organization has its uh, has a mission to achieve, right? So um, it's our job to help them mitigate risk and um, and be as successful as possible. And and I always tell um, my executives, look, if you if you let if you just gave me free reign, I could guarantee that every person will be safe, everything will be safe. But you'll be in a bubble. We'll have like guard dogs outside your house 24 seven. We'll put up, you know, sniper towers like but who wants to live like that? Right. So so we have to find that compromise. So for for the analyst, um, um, what they might begin to do, let's say if a company is considering moving into a new market that uh, has some concerns, right, or is maybe trending towards um, an authoritarian position and and looks like they might reasonably begin to try to leverage um, new enter, uh, new folks entering into the market. Well, um, the analysts could provide some potential indicators um, of, hey, this if these things start happening, it, it's going to mean that they're going to put the screws to us, right? And that um, we're that they they've targeted us um, and will and begin leveraging us. Yeah, and that can then spark conversations with other parts of the corporation of um, uh, doing some wargaming and begin talking about, okay, is there some red line at which we're going to cease further investment in this in this market, or where we'll begin to pull out, or? Um, uh, institute some other measure, right? So that we're not as exposed. Yeah. I, I like that too. The analyst role. I mean, I love the idea, uh, as our friend Ross Hill might say of intelligence driven operations led work. And this idea of like the Intel analyst job is to identify the, the red lines, help have discussions to create those, shall we say, intelligence requirements, but also drive questions. Yeah, we thought because as you were talking about that, I was thinking about your your counter intel or CI example of like small things happen over time, and the analyst role here is also to help ask questions along the way to make sure that you know you know this might not be a thing. Is it a thing? I mean, what what's your thoughts in in terms of look? There's Randolph's opinion. There's constructively disruptive, and then there's people who don't really know the the difference between being disruptive and being constructively disruptive. What's the analyst's role in being constructively disruptive? I think it's a lot in sort of raising the questions, right? So, so a lot mm-hmm. of uh, well, I don't want to say a lot. Let's say in my experience um, uh, within within private organizations, um, the various teams they're all focused on their individual lanes, on their missions, right? And so the analysts can be the voice that sort of bridges those teams together um, and um, presents them with questions or indicators that they might not have otherwise thought of. You know, for example, um, if if company A, if the first time company A thought about what they were going to do about their employees, facilities, customers in Russia or Ukraine, if the first time they thought about that was like February 25th um, of 2022, like that's a little <laughs> late, right? Yep. Um, and hopefully if you had an analyst um, or an Intel person or somebody in that role um, back in at least December, November, um, would have been saying, hey, what happens in these cases? Or um, uh, the the common scenario 
right, was that this was going to be a big show of force and there wasn't actually going to be an invasion in Russia. Well, that analyst um, could have, should have at least begin articulating um, possible scenarios from there. And maybe the company doesn't need to take any action, but at least if they spend a little bit of time thinking about it and saying, okay, if um, if Russia does cross, uh, cross the border into Ukraine, yep. Within 24 hours, we want to have a meeting mm-hmm. and talk about um, whether we're going to divest, de- you know, divest from well, Russia that, or whatever. Right. But begin having those plans in place so that people know what to expect well, rather and, than having to. Right. And now you start getting that risk leaders role of yeah. cool. The analyst is giving me some red lines or identified them and also giving me some triggers and ask some questions of which I can turn around. And I love the idea yeah. of wargaming or, you know, tabletopping or whatever the kids want to call it nowadays of let's just, and not every tabletop or war game has to be a five-day war game with 15 people. And yeah, sometimes it can it can be just like five people and a whiteboard. And somebody says, if this happens, what might what might the outcomes? How would we deal yep. with each outcome? Do we have we identified any major gaps that we need to go fill? And I mean, so that's I think we start going into that like risk leaders role. What 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 other advice would you give to that risk leader that's listening in, thinking their role in, in these kinds of things? Let me let me back up one more step because I, yep. I have an actual um, practical step that a, a frontline intel analyst can do. Um, sometimes, for whatever reason, maybe um, the topic is not one that leadership um, has the time to address right now has the interest to address right now, um, is just sort of in the mental framework to address right now. That's okay. Um, that individual analyst can go down a couple levels in that hierarchy and talk to their um, their peer in the other teams. Um, and maybe that's a, excuse me, maybe that's a, you know, a junior member of the legal team. Maybe that's somebody in the comms team uh, and can begin sort of doing that one-on-one of like, hey, if this were to happen, you know, how would your shop react or or what would your role be? And um, I, th- I've done this both in the military and private sector. Um, and I think you might agree, some of the most productive conversations occur yes. at that at that lower level. And that way, when you do present it to a leader, you can say, oh, I've already talked to legal, they would do, you know, this is where they are. This is where comms are. This is where sales is. Um, and that helps sort of grease the wheels uh, when the leaders do have to talk. I think that's a great idea. And I'm glad you you paused me to say that because that's something I I had listed to talk to you later, but it's perfect here. I mean, don't, as if you're at the operations level, whether you're an Intel analyst, maybe you're some, maybe you're a regional manager or something. The idea of like, you don't have, you don't always have to go talk to the CEO or the COO or the CFO. Go find those, go find those worker bees like yourself. We might yeah. call them centers of gravity within your organization that are doing the hard work and say, Hey, Dean, can we grab some coffee? I just want to, I just want to pass a crazy idea. What if Russia invaded Ukraine? What do you think you'd yeah. do? Well, how should we think about that? And you're right. You're seeding that idea. So when it does come up and the, you know, legal office or whatever has their staffing, you've already got somebody that says, Hey, I, I talked to the Intel people about this. They have some cool ideas. Maybe we should talk to them. And that goes the same for like, you know, uh, cyber and physical and all that stuff too. So that's a, that's a great, that's a great add on. So yeah. And an example, um, a real world example I can talk about was several years ago, there was a, 
looked like an international incident was going to happen. Um, it wasn't far enough advanced to sort of mobilize the the leadership team, but um, we felt that we clearly needed to have some sort of plans in place. So mm-hmm. um, talking to the person who actually manages visas and travel, emergency travel for the org to say like, hey, if I need to get 50 people out of this country, like how much lead time do you need? Um, and th- maybe they have to go to this one or, or two or three different countries. How much lead time do you need? What does that actually look like? What approvals do you need? How much does that cost? Um, and that gave us a lot of information to build those triggers, those red lines, right? That um, this is, okay, we need to, if we if we are gonna do this, we need to alert and get thumbs up from the leadership team two weeks out. Um, and that means, you know, we'll need to reach out to for financing four days out, whatever. Um, but that really helped. And it was, again, that was just sort of essentially a worker B to worker B conversation that um, probably gave us more information than if we gathered the whole leadership team right then. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis from some of the industry's top practitioners. Defined blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more. Check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. You know, what's interesting about that too, in terms of, you know, networking, you've now created, uh, you know, we're Clearly, we're kind of talking about geopolitical, geostrategic issues, but if we pause that for a minute, we just talk about networking within an organization, without an organization. Dean, I don't know how to network. I need to go talk to this person at PR. I don't know what to talk to him about. Talk to him about your job. Yeah. Hey, what if? Was well, something happening? No, but this is my role and this is what I do. And I'd be curious, how do you guys think about that? You're already creating excellent discussion topics and points They'll also be beneficial to you because as an analyst or a security operations person, because you kind of get an understanding of how they're going to react, but also helps kind of put you in the frame of like, oh, these, you know, you don't have to sell fear. You don't have to say like Russians or ninjas are coming, but just those casual ideas. I love what you said about, hey, if we had to get 50 people out of Canada next week, what would your guys' role be in that? Yeah. Um, what a what a great topic and uh, conversation starter. Yeah. and. um I know we started talking about geopolitical events, but this does not have to only be geopolitical events. You know, we have wildfires in the Western part of the U S every year. And what happens if, um, 10 of your key people of your org that keep your org going, um, if their houses are look like they might be in danger, like how how are you, are you going to move them out? Um, how long does that take? Where are you going to put them? Um, when do you make that decision? Uh, to do that, um, and how do you communicate that? Right. So all of that can be done. Um, doesn't have to involve country A talking about going to war with country B. Um, yeah, it can be in your backyard. Yeah, that's a, and what a it, that's a that's a great point too. I mean, it is all hazards. 
You know, we yeah. might like to say I'm a geopolitical analyst or I'm a cyber analyst or I'm a, a you know risk analyst. But at the end of the day, it's intelligence support to whatever the company's need is. You know, COVID yeah. was a perfect example. Many organizations pivoted. Whatever your political view is on COVID, many organizations, security being agile enough, pivoted to support what does this mean and how do we deal with it? And I think it was a moment in which organizations and intelligence uh, teams and risk intel teams in particular were highlighted uh, for their ability to look at the, the grand the grand scale of things. I think that was actually going to uh, was a great opportunity for intelligence and security teams um, because so many of us had to leave our comfort area. And um, hopefully one of the takeaways are going to be that um, it is possible to pivot even on something as globally important as a pandemic um, for which yep. most of us had little to no experience or exposure on the ability to sort of then adjust and um, provide real valuable yep. services to their organization. Um, super. Well, let's let's go back. We've kind of walked down the trail and then yeah. went down a side <laughs> trail. Let's walk. People are like, I want to finish this geopolitical yeah. thing, you guys. Um, let's go back to the geopolitical issue. I mean, we think about things like rogue Russia, um, you know, uh, what's happening in China, um, maybe, you know, Iran, other places. I mean, without digging into each of those specific ideas, I mean, you know, we've recently seen uh, continued um, violence in, in Mexico. Basically, we're saying, look, there's fires everywhere. How should we be thinking about this broadly, you know, to help inform leadership, to help, like you said earlier, you know, again, I go back to your CI uh, example, which I think is a good one. Things happen subtly. How do we, again, you know, I go back to how do we maintain our, our overwatch on that to help uh, to help discuss these with hire? Yeah. Um, and. and and look, I mean, there are some so there's some obvious flashpoints, right? You had mentioned Iran, um, you know, North Korea, Russia, but there are other countries that we all do business with that um, are fine, um, but we sh we should be paying attention and and beyond the criminal cartels and all that, right? We should be looking mm -hmm. at the laws they're passing. Um, we are not the only, you know, the United States is not the only country right now concerned about the impacts of social media. Um, there's a lot of um, countries who are concerned about the influence of foreign corporations in their country. Um, and some of that is um, we think those companies are taking too much money out of our, our, our country or we think they are spreading dangerous ideas in our country and we need to figure out how to rein them in, punish them. Um, and there are some uh, countries that say, that say, we don't really care about any of that, but um, we're concerned that these companies may undermine our grip on power and that is not acceptable. And whether that is because of um, NGOs they fund or messages that can carry through on their platform or uh, anything or you know um they promote fair labor practices who knows um can be anything in there so i think i think intel folks need to pay a lot more attention at sort of the business of government um that, yeah. that nations are doing and what laws they're passing um and how those impact or might impact um their organization now normally most companies have a legal team that look at like do we have any direct liability? Sure. Are there new regulatory requirements? That's fine. They should continue doing that. But there is a, I would argue, 
there is, um, at least in some countries, there is a, a threat component um, as well that we probably need to pay a little more attention to. How do we deal, if we're analysts and we're in that role, how do we deal with, uh, Dean, There, it's all fine here? How do you deal with those types of statements where it's like, ah, cool, I appreciate that you're doing this. We don't, we're not really interested in the issue. Maybe for whatever reason, they, you know, they're happy with the gray rhino in the room or, or they just don't feel it's a problem because our job is to sell. Our job is to create profit. Our job is to create value. And what you're telling me, I maybe don't want to hear because I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get our product in country or something. So, so there's a couple of things, right? It's it's not our job to drive policy um, in Intel. So <clears throat> all we can do is um, present the risks as we see them. Um, if asked, we can provide some mitigating recommendations. And then if leadership says, I hear you, we understand the risks, we think they're worth taking, that's that's within their pur- purview, right? Um, I think it's sort of the responsibility of Intel folks. We still track that. And when there are changes to the risk picture, that's when we can reintroduce that topic and say, hey, I know we were okay six months ago, but there's a new law that says um, any of our employees who um, say anything about the government are going to face six months in prison. Um, that is, We think that's a significant change of the risk picture. And then again, then the leadership can say, all right, I want some mitigating steps or no, I think I'm still fine with that level of risk, right? Um, yeah. So that's, I think, I think our job. I, I I love that that you know it is not our job in the as an intelligence analyst to create policy. We enhance decisions and we enhance the creation of policy, but we're not creating it or you know um, or or the ones that are putting it out. I in, but sometimes it's hard when you see. Uh, when you see things happening and, and you're involved in it and you're watching, I mean, what's your recommendation for, especially now? I mean, look, risk fatigue is a thing. And, yeah. you know, these analysts, especially I think of all hazards and I'm looking at everything from wildfires to uh, to actual fires um, to people being fired on, you know, and how do I kind of how do I deal with that as, as maybe a younger analyst that says there's a lot I've got to I've got to watch and it's starting to stress me out. Well, there certainly that's that's very normal in the field. So one, understanding that the business of thinking about and paying attention to bad things all day, every day is going to have a toll, right? Just just understanding it is normal to be worn down from that. Um, the second is almost every employer now has some sort of employee assistance program. Take advantage of that. Um, uh, usually within your um, health benefits, there is some sort of mental health component. Um, And if there is still a stigma about going to seek counseling or help, um, we need to get, we need to get past that. Like that's just not going to work anymore. Absolutely. Um, And um, uh, well, I think, I I mean, it's true. We're in a place now where I think we just need to accept like, look, there's a lot of stuff that we have to monitor. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm going to take five. I'm going to go walk around the yard for a minute. Yeah. It's it, it's fine. And, sh- and and if you're a leader, check on your people and not just the yeah. text that says, you good, bro, but really yeah. call someone. Hey, how are you doing today? What are you doing today? And and as a leader, recognizing when your folks are under stress and and 
strongly recommending that they get some help. I mean, the way I've recommended a number of analysts to go talk to people because they were clearly, you know, beginning to burn yeah. out, beginning to sort of suffer from what they saw. And yes, I encountered the, uh, I don't want to go to counseling. That's not for me. I don't have that big of a problem. And my response was, look, go do it. It's going to be 60 minutes and you're going to talk. That's all you're going to do. Yeah. So the, your worst case scenario, you waste 60 minutes. I know that's that's your worst case scenario. The best case scenario, you come out and you go, yeah, you know what? I do feel a little bit better. And I think I want to do that again. And, and no one's going to judge you for 60 minutes. They're just going to listen and maybe offer yeah. us a bit of advice. Yeah, that's a good. Um, and and certainly, you know, um, being able to share that I've done that. Um, uh, analysts that I've worked with, them being able to share with their subordinates now yep. that they've done that. Um, it's just, it's not a thing. Um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yes, people might look at you funny if you said you were going to counseling for this or that. It's just not a thing anymore. And and particularly for young analysts, um, yep. hopefully they're going to be in this field for 20, 30, 40 years. Yep. They cannot just bury that for 20, 30 years. It's like, yeah. it's not going to get better if you don't do anything you, about it. You can only push pause on the emotion switch so much. And then yep. when you unpause it, it's all, I mean... Yeah. Physics tells us energy doesn't go away. It just transfers into something else. Um, I think, you know, think about 20, 30 years ago. I remember a young Chuck Randolph got his private investigations license. I was doing a lot of uh, due diligence support and all that. And I remember I would run across a lot of insurance adjusters and claims adjusters. And I always remember thinking like, man, they're all stressed out because yeah. all they're getting every day is the negative parts of people's lives. Um yeah. And I remember uh, having to deal with a few cases where, uh, uh, you know, a few people kind of took it to an extreme. But I think you're right. And we've come a, a long way. There's always, as the Robert Frost poem says, there's miles to go before we sleep. But I think we've, we've come a long way. Dean, I, I don't I don't want to let you go without asking. Like, you know, we've been talking about mostly geopolitics. But, you know, of course, I knew we'd waver a little bit because it's you and it's me. And there's lots to discuss. <laughs> um in this back to this geopolitical kind of all the things, what is the not the not the business leader, not the CEO, not the C-suite, if you will. But what's that risk leader's role here? I mean, we have risk. I purposely say risk leader because, look, they have there's physical risk, there's cyber risk, there's there's legal risk. There's all what's the risk leader's role in all this to make sure that we're synchronizing and thinking about things um, to the best of the corporation or the organization. So they're the, they're the ones who, who really should be coordinating, um, between the various elements, um, within the org and to do that. And I can't, I can't overstate how important this is. They have to really have credibility across the organization. Um, and that is, that's something that requires work. It doesn't, doesn't just happen. Um, they need to have a relationship so, so that when they go talk to that C-suite member and they say, we've got serious concerns about your business trip, this, this next um, event, uh, you know, or where we're expanding to, that that C-suite member goes, they only come to me when it is a really big deal, right? They aren't chicken little um, and they aren't, you know, and they don't have their head in the sand. I know that's the real deal. So um, that risk leader needs to be real, spend up some time and spend effort in developing that credibility and trust uh, um, across the organization. Dean, we hear, uh, you know, we just had summit. It was great. We're sad that you couldn't be there and accept your honor as a thought leader with our protective Intel honorees and congratulations, by the Thank way. You. Um, Thank you. 
And at Summit, I heard some folks talking about, you know, this idea of selling fear. Um, I, I know that seems like kind of a no-brainer question, but I mean, what's what's your thoughts on how close can we get to selling the issue or talking about the value of risk and what it means until we cross that line and now we're just selling fear? Yeah, I mean, it's um, I understand uh, I can understand how people as a short term strategy would do that, but it never pay, I don't think it ever pays off. Um, and being able to be again, if you talk about that credibility, talking to anyone throughout the org, but particularly C-suite members and say, look, my job is to tell you how I see risk. And generally us in, us in the intel and security fields are generally going to be more um, uh, risk adverse um, and small C conservative when it comes to sort of our appetite for risk. But we will mm. we'll be totally honest with that. And we will give you a range of mitigating steps that we think we can do. Yep. If um, And I have found that that works really well, right? When you're talking about Intel and you're talking about risk mitigation um, and you're talking about threat Intel, um, I think what harms us is if we go to those leaders and we essentially give them no choice um, and we say, you can't expand into this country or you, you know, you won't travel here because that just rarely goes well. Um, The person you're telling all of a sudden feels powerless. But if you say, look, we have grave concerns about this trip or this event or this this new mm-hmm. um, place we're expanding into. Here are three scenarios, right? Um, and we're going to talk about the mitigation steps and what risk we think you're facing at each one, and then let them decide, right? And then they have the they have the ultimate decision, which is where it should be in an organization. Um, but they also have agency, and that is right. super important. Whether you're talking about a CEO or an intern, um, if People feel like they have some control and some agency in their lives. Risk mitigation, threat mitigation is just so much easier. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I give people agency. And uh, of course, you would answer it no. I would expect no less from you, my friend. Kind of last question as we think about wrapping up, like, what what are you watching? What are you reading? I, I, I don't mean like The Last of Us or something, but like, what are you watching? What are you, what are you consuming now? I'm always curious to know, because I'm like you, I'm always like, I go through this thing where I like purge my podcasts and I look at new things and what I'm, you know, so what are you interested in right now? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm still interested in sort of nation states right now mm-hmm. and how they're um, interacting. So yes, the Russia, Ukraine um, issue, um, China generally, but China, Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, the Indian elections coming up next year, I think um, are potentially a big deal. So um paying attention to all of those. Um, and the U.S. Uh, domestic political situation, what that means for businesses yep. um, and employees is um, is still very high on my sort of concern radar. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to have you come back on and we can discuss the, uh, the pros and cons of AI and oh, AI yeah, and its use exactly. in Intel. I mean, that's a whole nother, like that's, that's a whole nother discussion that uh, I, I really would love to get your opinion on. Dean, I really appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy to come and talk to the uh, Protective Intelligence podcast. And thank you for your participation. Thank you. Anytime.
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcasts on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.